Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series for the spring and summer is called Conversations. Each week we will take a topic and have members of our congregation talk about it in a pre-taped interview. These conversations are not scripted, and they form the foundation of the sermon being spoken about that day. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Our first scripture passage today comes from Matthew 27, verses verses 11 through 14. Let us listen for the word of God. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave them no answer, even when to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture lesson today, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 31. And uh, I'll tell you that whenever we read Paul, it's just like reading gibberish. It's, it really it doesn't make a ton of sense. So when you read it, if it doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. It'll make sense later when we get into the sermon. So anyways, all that to say, he's a great man. He just he would go off. So here we go. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greek desires wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, as you all know, we are doing our sermon series, Conversations, and each week we begin this sermon series with a pre-taped conversation between members of our congregation, and today we are talking about the concept of the need for failure. So let's see what the members of our congregation had to say about this topic. That's just something that I just said. <laughs> Talk about a time when you failed at something. I bought a chemical plant right in 1999. And it was not a good year to do that. And the mistake I made, I made two really major errors I look back on it, but the, the business, finally, we just couldn't get enough business to support the plant. I like to cycle, um, and uh, I decided that I wanted to do something crazy and, and ride 160 miles um, all in one day. 
Um, and um, that was pretty crazy. Uh, so um, the, when I first tried to do this, um, I tried it on a mountain bike, which was silly. Okay. okay. And uh, we were riding all the way to Michigan from Naperville. And um, so the, the first time I tried it, uh, I made 100 miles and quit because I didn't have much left. <laughs> and I just got a ride back home. Probably the biggest failure that, that sort of comes to mind for me is my decision uh, to not go away to college when I graduated from high school, which was kind of kind of weird because I was one of three valedictorians in my senior class, but I would have been the first person in my family to go to college, and I really didn't see that I had the means, or think I had the means to go. Auditioning for uh, a different band, or like a different chair in band, and I didn't make it, but my friends had made it to that band, so that I wouldn't be in the same band as my closest friends, and after failing, because I didn't really care that much to begin with, but after failing I realized how much more I wanted to get it, more than I had wanted it originally, just because I had failed. What did you learn from that failure? For me, I found failure is really an important part of growing, you know? I, my failures helped me grow a lot more than my successes, because I, I spent a lot more time thinking about my failures than I do about my successes in, in life. And the next year, I came back. At first, I bought a road bike, which was a smart thing to do, okay? And then uh, I trained a lot. And um, not only did I fix my, learn from my failure, um, but <laughs> what I didn't know was I was actually the first one to finish this ride. I graduated from high school and I got a job and I eventually went to night school, to paralegal school at night. Um, and the lesson I learned from it though is that Frankly, it's never too late to, you know, follow your dream or make up for those failures or start over. So when I was 28, I had been working as a paralegal at a law firm and I just decided that I wanted to go to college. Then I auditioned again because we had a second chance to do it. And then I, I actually tried a lot harder that time because this time I really wanted it. And I got it, which, I mean, my band instructor was like really amazed, like I didn't know you could play this well. Why do you think people are so afraid of failure? Everything is so public. How do you take a risk if you think somebody else is going to see your mistake? People who we've held on pedestals in many cases, rightly or wrongly in society, they make one mistake. It's emphasized and it's emphasized for everyone to hear and read about. So you almost see that and it's scary and you say, yeah. You know, that could happen to me. Failure could be really embarrassing for some people, and I guess that's why most people are pretty scared of failure, because they try so hard to do something, and then, you know, people look at them, and they're putting all this work into it, and then it just doesn't work out, and then, you know, all that work is kind of wasted. I had a student once who placed second in the state in a speech competition, and I went to congratulate him. I didn't, I wasn't there for the, the tournament and I saw him on Monday, I'd heard his good news and I went up to him and I said, congratulations, that's awesome. And he, he got really, he was, you could tell he was like visibly upset somebody was praising him for it because my dad thinks second place is the first loser. Are there areas of your life where you worry you will fail? My wife and I have been a big part of the, the uh, DR mission for 12, 14 years and uh, I look at that and it's always what more could, you know, what more could I have done? What, what else could be done? 
I'm a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> um, I think that I have felt like a failure more times than I felt like a success, especially when I was younger. Um, I had a bit of a pressure cooker family in an odd sort of way. I was going to be the first one to go to college, so I was, you know, everybody's hope was riding on me. Um, and sometimes that was, that was a lot for me to try to handle. Every day as a parent, you know, I feel like a failure because, you know, there's always that woulda, shoulda, coulda, would have done that differently if I could. And so I, I think I just try to keep reminding myself that that image that's out there of the perfect mom or the perfect woman or the perfect man isn't necessarily realistic. When you read the chapters of, of the Bible, and especially going back to the Old Testament, it's a lot about failure and about redemption. And I think people take the time to go back and, and listen to some of those. I think you get a better sense, truly, what is written in the Bible is telling you. You're going to fail, but through those fails, you can truly find redemption. So I want to begin this morning by telling you all a story. And no, this is not like my modern parable stories that were like half fact, half fiction. This is, this is all real. This is a true story. So my wife and I, we went to my son Elijah's kindergarten orientation. And so we walk into the elementary school and we go into the cafeteria and we sit down at those child-sized tables, you know, in the cafeteria, the ones that are super teeny. And so, you know, we get all scrunched in there and we're with the faculty. They have the principal and the teachers are there. And after kind of the perfunctory, we're so excited that you're here, they send Elijah off, he goes off to his room, and we're there with the teachers. And so the teachers, they stand up, and one starts talking to us, and is trying to tell us, what is it going to look like when your kindergartner goes to school? What's a day in the life of your kindergartner? So they start off, of course, where everybody would start, which is where? At the beginning of the day, right? So... They're telling us the difference between what we should expect if we bus our kids in versus driving them. And then she says that the kindergarten teachers, they got together and they made a decision that what they want to do is they wanted to be there at the door to greet the students as they came in and then escort them through the hallway. And when I heard that, I thought to myself, oh, that's really nice that they want to be there to say hello to them on the first day of school. But then she continued on and she said that it wasn't just going to happen on the first day of school, it was going to happen every day of school, that they would be there to escort them in because they shouldn't have to walk through the hallways alone. And when she said that, I kind of thought to myself, I was like, really? They shouldn't have to walk through the hallways alone? It's like a minute and a half walk from the door of the school to his classroom. Like, it's not that far. I think he could probably handle walking for a minute and a half by himself. Then she continues on. She says that actually what they're going to do at lunchtime is they're going to give them assigned seats. Because, you know, when you walk into the lunchroom, it can be stressful to figure out where your friend is, who you're going to sit by. So we're just going to take that out of the equation completely. We're going to give them assigned seats because we want the transition to kindergarten to be as stress-free as possible. And again, I thought to myself, is this really a good idea? Now, I, I understand. I, I'm all in favor of lowering the level of anxiety. I remember what school was like. School could be extraordinarily stressful when you go in. But shouldn't we allow kids to figure some things out for themselves? 
I mean, isn't that part of what school's all about? That you're given the opportunity to kind of navigate these social situations? I remember my first day of kindergarten very, very clearly. Because when I walked in, I got totally and completely lost in the school. I was literally just wandering around. Part of it is the fact that I'm geographically inept, and that's, that's part of the issue. It's still an issue to this day. I get lost walking everywhere. But I was lost. I walked in there, and I was clearly in the wrong place. And some teacher, she took me and then escorted me. And I remembered, as she was escorting me into the kindergarten wing, that I saw up on the wall, it was like the upper part of the wall, they had these letters that were painted across the wall, all the way down. It was the letters of the alphabet. And I made a mental note that day, and I remembered, I was like, you need to look for the letters if you're going to find your classroom. So yes, my first day of kindergarten was very stressful. Would have been nice to have somebody there to escort me down, but I learned an important lesson. If you see the painted letters, you know you're on the right track. (laughs) Humans are able to learn a lot from failure. As you heard Larry Hayes say in the video, we tend to learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. But we now live in a society where failure is no longer seen as an asset. Parents will go to great lengths to ensure that their children never feel the sting of failure. This is probably, one place you can see this probably the best is in sports. So, in sports, and you all know this to be true, it's cute, like I get it, but the fact is is that when you have your kid go out and do a sport, what do they all get? They're all going to get at the end of the season, what do they have? A trophy. You get an award for participation. Even if your kid came in dead last in their, on their team, they still get a trophy just for showing up. And, you know, that's a cool thing. I know that that can actually provide a lot of self-worth by just having that. And I'm not totally in favor of the whole pressure cooker thing that we do with kids in sports. But, again, I ask myself, is that necessarily a good thing? Well, let's take schools, for example, how kids take tests. Let's say your kid doesn't do well on a test. Well, don't worry about it. Your kid can just take the test over and over and over again until they eventually get the grade that they want. Oh, hey, but if that doesn't work, you know what? Your parent can just call the school and threaten the teacher with complaints so that your child can get the grade that they deserve. When did we become like this? Like, when did we transition from a society where our motto was, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, to a society where we refuse to allow our children to fail. And I've been contemplating this question a lot recently, and I did some research, and I found that it's actually a very complicated question to answer. But if you boil it down, the primary factor actually has a lot to do with our education system. So if you look at our education system, the way that we teach, we use what's known as mirroring. So the idea is that... uh, A teacher stands up in front of a group of people, right? And presents an idea. So the idea might be a math problem. It might be a concept in biology. It might be some historical fact. And the student's goal is to what? The student's goal needs to demonstrate that they understand what the teacher is saying by showing that they have learned the information. And how do they do that? Well, they use instruments like tests, right? They take a test, and during the test, you have to actively reproduce that information from your mind. Now, does that sound familiar? 
It should, because it's pretty straightforward. It's the way you and I and just about everybody you know learned information in the past. But there's a problem with this way of learning. The fundamental assumption behind mirroring is that when somebody presents you with a piece of information, maybe in this instance it's a teacher, something that they know, your job is to copy that information exactly as you heard it into your brain. Is that right? Okay. So once you copy it, if you can mimic what the teacher said, and the closer you get to mimicking it, the better you learn the information, the better your grade will be. Is that correct? All right. Okay. But there's a problem with that. That's not learning. That's memorizing. And there's actually a big difference between those two things. Just because you can remember something that someone said exactly as they said it doesn't mean you understand what it was that they said. True learning is the application of knowledge to real-world circumstances. True learning actually changes the composition of your brain. So those two definitions, you see them up there on the screen? It's the application of knowledge to real-world circumstances, and it changes your brain. I want to explain to you how this works. And I'm going to use an example that you can all kind of wrap your mind around. How many people in here have a computer at home that they use? If you don't have a computer at home, you probably have one on your phone, because we can carry them around these days. Okay, so our computers that we have in our homes, they are the perfect memorizers, right? Whatever you put onto that computer, it's going to remember it exactly as you put it in. But that computer, it has no comprehension of what that information means, or how each of those pieces of information are connected to each other. They're just little bits of data on the hard drive, right? But recently, a new type of computer, a new generation of computers has come out, being produced by IBM and Google. These are supercomputers that are known as learning computers. Do you all, have you ever seen Watson? Did you see Watson go up against the humans on Jeopardy, right? Did you, did you watch that happen? Okay, it was very interesting to see, because Watson, which is just a supercomputer, it's being asked the same questions as everybody else, and this computer did pretty well, actually. It's able to take these disparate pieces of information, and it's able to form connections in the same way that we can. Google recently created a computer to play the ancient Chinese game Go. Do you know this game? Have you ever seen it before? Seen anybody play it? Okay, so Go is actually a very simple game on its surface. It's a... It's a very old game, but basically, there are so many different permutations of what you can do in Go that it's very, very hard to play. It is estimated that no one game of Go has ever been played the exact same way. That's how many permutations there are. So, originally, when Google made the Go computer, they thought that what we'll do is we'll have the computer crunch all the possible moves. But what would happen is the computer would literally shut down it couldn't figure out all the moves and couldn't, didn't know what to do. There were just too many possibilities. So they stepped back and they said, okay, we're going to take a different approach. This approach that we're going to use is we're going to tell the computer the rules of the game and nothing else. And then they let the computer play hundreds of thousands of games of Go with itself so that it could learn from its mistakes. And then after months of trial and error, they put it up against one of the best players in the world, like the fourth best player in the world. And the computer won. Now, let me ask you a question. 
If you were to take the computer you have at home and compare it to the supercomputer, which one is more like you, the human brain? Which one works more like you do? Which one? The supercomputer, right? The learning computer. Why? Well, because this supercomputer, it learns the way we learn. So when you learn a new game, how does it work? Well, you sit down and you're a blank slate. You don't know the rules at all. And so you have to go in and you have to start playing. And are you going to be very good at the game at the beginning? No, because you never played it before. You don't have any strategy. So as you play, though, as you lose a lot, you learn how to work and make the best moves within the rules of the game. And eventually, after enough time, when you failed enough, you learn what not to do so that then your brain actually changes the way it looks at the rules of the game, and then you can become successful. That's what happens when we play a game. It takes time for us to really learn how it works, right? You follow me on this? Okay. Now I want to ask you another question. The second question is, if you were to pit the computer you have in your home against a supercomputer on a standardized test that a child takes in school, which one would do better? And ironically, they do exactly the same. The reason why is because even though the supercomputer thinks like our minds think, in order to do well on a standardized test, it just requires you to regurgitate memorized information. That's all. All you're doing is you're taking the square peg and you're putting it into the square hole. Our education system rewards the best memorizers. Thinking is not really a requirement. Now, I want to take a stop here. Time out. Because I know we have a number of educators in our congregation, and I'd like to keep my job. I want to make a differentiation between the education system and the teachers. There were two teachers in that video. Mary Larson, Todd Smith. Todd was the one who tried to bike all the way on his own, right? Used the mountain bike. They are both educators. They had a lot of things to say about the education system and the concept of failing. And I know that many teachers don't like the way our education system is run. They are within it. They don't have much choice. They have to deal with that. However, we do have an education system. And the truth is, it does reward the best memorizers. The more information you can store on the hard drive of your brain, the better you are going to do when it comes to moving up the chain of education. Whether you understand what that information means when you bubble it in on the standardized test, how it applies to the world, its importance, that doesn't really matter. What matters is, do you know the right answer? And unfortunately, this is now the foundation of our educational system. There is one right answer, you either know it or you don't. And this has had horrible consequences for our society. In the first place, it has created the situation that I referenced earlier, where parents are unwilling to allow their children to fail. Let me give you a little history about how this came about. So in the 1960s, that's when colleges first started accepting the SAT, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, for rising people who are graduating from high school, going into college, for getting accepted into college. They said, we want you to start sending us your SAT score. And what was the idea? The better your score, the better college you can get into. Pretty simple, right? That makes sense to everybody? 
Okay, you all know it because that's what you had to deal with when you were going to school. In the 60s and 70s, there was only a handful of perfect or near-perfect SAT scores. But beginning of the 1980s, schools started changing their curriculums in order to teach for the SAT. It started to be geared towards that because it was so important during the college admissions process. And this is why our education system is now all about there is one right answer. So you get past the 80s into the late 90s when I was applying to school and the early aughts, and all of a sudden you see that there are all these people everywhere getting perfect and near-perfect SAT scores to the point where if you get a perfect SAT score, it doesn't even make you stand out that much. And so parents started flipping out about this because even if your kid gets a perfect SAT score, that's no guarantee they're going to get into a top-tier school. And so they start hovering, right, being a helicopter parent, and they start trying to figure out ways that their child can be perfect all the time because they're so scared if their child fails that they'll not be able to move forward in life. And so they have to be perfect all the time, and they cannot fail ever. This is why a parent will call a school and complain about a grade to a teacher because even the slightest hint of failure could derail your child's future forever. Another example, second example, of how this concept in education has had a bad effect on our society. I want to talk about our leaders for a second, people who lead our society. This has something to do with what happened in Florida and their response to it, how people have responded. I don't want to use that as the example. I want to use a different example. Let's say there's something happening in the economy, something going wrong in the economy. Tell me which person you like better. Do you like the person who stands up there as the leader and says to you, hey, guys, you know what? This situation is complicated. There's a lot of variables involved. We're going to have to weigh a lot of things to figure out what we're going to do in order to make a decision, and frankly things are probably going to get worse before they get better. Or, do you like the person who stands up there and says, I know all the answers, and I know exactly what to do? Which one do you like better? Be honest, you like the guy who has all the answers, right? I mean, it's true. It's just part of who we are. And the reason why is because we've all been raised the same way. There is one right answer. You either know it or you don't. But that's not true, is it? In life, there is never one right answer. There is always a multiplicity of answers. And whether or not you know the best answer to pick in a given situation is if you understand what won't work. And the only way you understand what won't work is if you've gone through a lot of trial and error. You see, true learning requires failure. Do you hear me on that? True learning requires failure. How did that computer, the Google computer, learn how to play the game Go? It wasn't perfect the whole time. It had to make mistakes to learn, which is the same way we learn how to play a game, right? True learning requires failure. If you are not failing, you are not learning. Because when you fail, it teaches you an avenue that won't work in a particular circumstance. And that avenue, that's not lost information. You can use that information in a totally different set of circumstances. Thomas Edison, the man credited as one of the greatest inventors of all time, he once said, many of life's failures are people who do not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. 
If you look at Thomas Edison's life, the inventions that he made, you will find that the vast majority of them are the result of his failures. He failed in a circumstance, and then that gave him an idea that planted a seed for another invention he did later on. He was successful because he was willing to fail. But now we live in a society where you can't fail. And if you do, then your whole life is going to be messed up, right? That's what we're thinking right now. The reason why we are lagging so far behind in innovation is because we are scared to fail. But the truth is, progress is the accumulation of failure until that failure produces something original. I want to say that again because that's so important. Progress is the accumulation of failure until that failure produces something original. Originality is being squeezed out of our society right now. We are being taught to be carbon copies of one another because we are scared to fail. And that's why I love Christianity so much. Christianity is a religion that is built around the premise of success through failure. The entire foundation of it. Let me show you what I mean by that. So we read two scriptures today. Both of them were about Jesus' death. The first one was just a couple of verses. Do you remember it? Jesus, he's before Pontius Pilate. Do you remember what happens? He gets in there, right? And he's before Pontius Pilate. Pilate's asking him all these questions. And Jesus pretty much says what? Nothing. Doesn't give any defense. Which objectively makes zero sense. Jesus is the Messiah. What's the Messiah supposed to do? The Messiah is supposed to rise up and be the new leader, the new king of Israel. Well, you can't do that if you're dead. You've got to stay alive, right? So you would think that if he's in that situation, he would say, hey, yeah, it's not me. Like, let me go, you know? But he doesn't do that, does he? He ends up going to the cross and dying. And what you have to appreciate is that from the perspective of the disciples, the moment he gets up on the cross and dies, he is now a failed Messiah. His messiahship was a total and complete failure. But then what happens? What happens is something unexpected. He appears to his disciples. And all of a sudden, everything changes. This is what Paul's talking about in his scripture that was not so clear. What does he say? He says, God chose what is foolish in order to shame the wise. What does that mean, foolish? Foolish is the idea that a guy would go before Pontius Pilate and say nothing. That's foolish. God chose what is weak in the world in order to shame the strong. What is weak? Getting up on the cross and dying, not fighting back. That's weakness, right? And yet, the crazy thing is that this guy who was convicted and executed for treason, he has brought hope, joy, and love to people for more than 2,000 years. And so if you are a person who's been a part of the Christian faith, you know this to be true. It doesn't make any sense, but you know it to be true in your life. In the same way, when you look at success, intuitively we sit there and we say, if you want to be successful, you should avoid failure, right? But in fact, the exact opposite is true. If you want to be successful, you need to embrace failure. This is the beauty of Christianity. Christianity is a religion that encourages failure. Jesus is the ultimate example of failure. And I think that's why I've always been drawn to it. Because on some level or another, I think that we find through Christianity the idea that the best kind of life 
is a life found through failure. I can't tell you guys, if I went through and told you all the failures I've been through in my life, it would take me literally more than 24 hours. I have this huge list. My life was a total failure when I was young. But yet, that taught me how to overcome and be something different when I was older. The most successful people I know have been some of the greatest failures at earlier points in their life. And what this tells me is we need to teach our children how to fail. Lucas, you need to learn how to fail. It's important. Our kids need to learn how to fail a lot. Because what they learn from that is that success is not found in right or wrong answers, but in the bravery and courage to try something different, even if it doesn't work. Since our society has started to get away from failure as something that we should embrace, I want you to know that I see the church as a place where we can come and bring our failures. The entire point of being here, in my mind, is that we come together as we are. You bring yourself, your failures, your faults, your flaws, whether they be personal or professional. And then we follow in Jesus' footsteps. We hold our head up high. We offer no defense for our actions. We have to deal with the consequences of our failures. And through that hard, difficult road, we will be transformed into someone completely new. We will learn from our mistakes. We will discern a new way forward. And ultimately, we will experience a resurrection. We will be resurrected into an entirely new person, the person who God intended for us to be. The only requirement, though, is that you simply have to be willing to fail. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.